0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Bobby Toswell, a master's student in logic at the Institute for Logic, Language, and Computation at the University of Amsterdam. I'm the host here on the New Books Network. Uh, today, we'll be talking with Sam Gershman about his new book, What Makes Us Smart? The Computational Logic of Human Cognition, published 2021, Princeton University Press. Uh, Sam Gershman is a professor of psychology and brain science at Harvard University. His research focuses on the cognitive neuroscience of learning and memory. And in What Makes Us Smart, he argues that cognitive errors are the inevitable consequences of a brain that's optimized for efficient inference and decision-making within the constraints of time, energy, and memory. So welcome to the show, Sam. We're really happy to have you on. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. All right. Fantastic. Um, So in classic uh, NBN fashion, we're just going to start the interview by asking, you know, what's your background, Sam? How did you get to uh, what you're doing? You know, maybe where you grew up, mentors who've helped you along the way?
1: Uh, I grew up in Chicago, mostly, and um, I had a kind of interesting upbringing because I, I saw perspectives from both um, the sciences and art and literature. Um, my, my mother, well, she did many things. Among other things, she was a, a collage artist. Uh, and uh, my father is a computer scientist. And um uh, so I got exposure to ideas from cognitive science and computer science, artificial intelligence early on, although I, I can't say that I, I fully grasped all of those ideas when I was exposed to them. Um, but it kind of fed an early interest for me. And um, when I went to college, I went to Columbia University for undergraduate. And I really was not sure at all what I wanted to study. Um, I thought maybe I would do history or literature. But I took a cognitive neuroscience class out of curiosity and it totally captured my imagination. And I immediately started trying to figure out how I could do work in that area. And I I worked in a few labs uh, and that really just kind of got me going. And from there, um, it was this sort of path of least resistance to um, going to graduate school. The one thing that I I realized when I was a undergrad was that um, There was this whole area of computational work being done uh, that I didn't really understand, um, didn't really know how to do it. But I had this inkling that that was where all the action was. And so I really put my mind to trying to learn as much about it as I could.
0: Yeah, I think I I can relate. I've sort of come into logic from a similar perspective. It seems like a really interesting topic and you try to get involved because there's clearly a lot to get there. And then eventually you end up writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, and actually, I guess we could say very quickly, um, what brought you to this particular book? Like, at what point did you begin looking into it?
1: Um, I, I've mean, i been thinking about the ideas inside this book for years, uh, but I only started writing it a few years ago. Um, and the, the, the puzzle... That I try to address in this book is one that's really quite central to cognitive science because various people have come up with different answers um, to this puzzle, and and it's been a kind of motivating puzzle for for many years. Now, what is that puzzle? The puzzle is, in a nutshell, why are we so smart and so stupid at the same time? Um, as as probably many people know. Um, there, there are lots of ways in which human reasoning is is frail and possibly even irrational, um, and and we have we in our daily lives have all sorts of cognitive failures. Like um, there are things that we that are there that we don't see. Or we see things that aren't there. We remember things that never happened. We fail to remember things that happened, and the list goes on. So there's a whole industry within psychology of generating these findings about the, the frailties of human cognition. Um, but at the same time, you can see a, a large literature that kind of exists in parallel to all of this, which suggests that humans are close to optimal, that they do things in a way that makes computational sense. Um, for example, they, they use the probability calculus to reason. Um, and um, they, they plan and um, they uh, carry out actions in, in an energy-efficient manner and so on. Now, 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 both of these perspectives can't be completely true by themselves, right? It's One or the other has to be true in some sense. Um, but to really find a, a satisfying reconciliation of them, um, you have to kind of change your perspective a little bit um, by... First of all, acknowledging that the brain is a computationally limited device. Um, it's limited in what it can do, and it's limited in the kind of data that it can collect. Um, and as a consequence, um, when we talk about optimality, we have to be careful about what kind of computational device we are making claims about, right? What, what does it mean to be optimal um, for a computationally limited system like the brain? Uh, and that, that's really the jumping off point of the book. I try to articulate um, what are the constraints on intelligence? And from there, we can start to ask, uh, what, 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 what does intelligent behavior actually look like under those constraints? Uh, and, I, and I highlight two basic ideas. One of them um, is called uh, um, inductive bias. And that's the idea that we have limited data uh, about the world. And in order to learn about the world, given that limited data, we have to um, have some guesses or prior beliefs about which hypotheses are more likely to be correct than others, even before seeing the data. Um, And that is a bias, right? It's going to lead to bias, but in fact, that bias is indispensable for any learning system. And then the second idea um, is a kind of computational bias or approximation bias uh, and that's the idea that there are many problems um, that we can't solve exactly we can only solve them approximately but we might have efficient algorithms f- for obtaining approximate solutions that are provably close to the optimal solution um, and so we shouldn't expect a computationally limited system to be able to do things like exact probabilistic inference which is in general intractable um, and um, and interestingly, once we start to take into account these kinds of computational limitations, limitations on um, what you can observe and the limitations on what you can compute, um, then things that appeared irrational start to become more rational from that perspective.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, perfect. That was actually my, my first question was going to be to go into some detail about the inductive and approximation biases. But I think that was a, a lovely introduction, um, kind of giving a, a whole... Yeah, a general statement of, of your framework that you pursue in the book. I, I think that was very interesting. And I think especially that um, the the idea of inductive bias, I mean, it, it reminded me right off the bat of a lot of things to do with analogical reasoning, that we you know are sort of limited by what we already know, that we see the world through those eyes. But at the same time, if we didn't, we couldn't possibly look into anything at all. We'd have too many, you know an infinite number of possible interpretations. We have to find some way to sort through all that noise. And I think you do a great job of, of arguing for that in the, in the book. Um, so I think to sort of move into something, um, that is, I think, both specific to a particular chapter and also really, uh, involved for your entire, uh, book is in, in the fourth chapter, you talk about over imitation and about all the ways in which, um, from an experimenter's point of view, someone trying to solve a task might do things that really aren't necessary, but that we're assuming that the the agent performing the task has the experimenter's point of view. And I think that really seems kind of central to um, the, the main sort of argument against this idea of irrationality on its own terms is that, well, what's necessary from the observer's point of view is not necessarily the same as what's necessary from the experimenter's point of view. We, we ourselves, looking at it from the outside, are, um, we have a lot more information given to us than someone in there. And so if we were to... Uh, Ex- expect them to know everything that we did. Well, that's that's a little unfair. I, I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on, on that kind of claim.
1: Right. So th- there's a re- recurring theme that applies to overimitation and a lot of other uh, phenomena that I talk about in my book where the designation of error is really from an external observer's point of view. So we're saying that th- this error was made relative to objective reality, or at least relative to what the external observer can see. Um, but if we take the kind um, of internal.
0: Uh, Sam, could yeah. you uh, just repeat that last bit that you sort of cut out for a sec? I think the connection is a little unstable.
1: Okay. Um, when, when we talk about error, we often are talking about errors from a kind of um, external point of view, the, the point of view of an external observer, um, but to understand the kind of intrinsic point of view, the, the point of view from the um, the agent who's actually having to, to carry out behavior, um, we, we need to take into account um, the constraints that apply to the observer, uh, to the to the agent, not to the external observer, um, and that means that some things that look like errors to the external observer are not really errors from the perspective of the the capacity limited agent um, because for example the agent might need to infer things that are observable to the external observer um, and and so that 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 theme recurs throughout the book where um, if we can generate a hypothesis about what people are actually trying to do in these tasks right what what are the, the limitations on what they know about the world then we can um, start to think about what actually is optimal
0: yeah, I think that that really did come through in, in each of the chapters, and I think for the the questions that I'm asking here, it's it's really going to be a bit of a sampler because mm-hmm. I think that the, the book covers such a, a wide variety of different um, uh, observed phenomenon, uh, observed phenomena that seem to be yeah, as as someone would say, the peak examples of irrationality, and I think that uh, and that's the benefit of of the framework that you're putting forth is that you can kind of account for all of these different data with one. Basic framework that says that we need to rethink how we're asking the question and keep in mind those kinds of constraints. So uh, one particular one that I, I liked a lot um, was you talk about the uh, the backfire effect or, or a number of other kinds of, of biases where people will, um, when presented with uh, information that conflicts with their currently held beliefs, they tend to respond by believing their original belief even harder. And uh, and and where I'm studying and, and what I'm studying, and we spent a lot of time. Worrying about social epistemology, and and so I thought it was really interesting to see how uh, how your framework took this on. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, about what the backfire effect is, how it has to do with um, agents who don't know if other agents are lying, and how we can kind of gain some idea of what is actually quite a rational response to a complicated world.
1: Yeah. So there's a general problem, which is that um, if you present some information to a person. Um, whether or not they assimilate that information and, and believe it depends not just on the information itself, but also on um, that person's background assumptions about the process that generated that information, namely you and where you got that information. Um, so clearly, for example, if you think somebody is lying to you, um, then you're not going to believe the information, whether or not the information is true. Um, Needless to say, that that has uh, resonance with modern issues and uh, 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 information communication. Now, now, sometimes it's ambiguous, right? Sometimes the um, observer has to uh, make inferences about whether or not this person is lying to them or where they got that information from. Like, are they biased? You know, what, was this person being, for example, incentivized by some... Um, some interest uh, interested party that would that w- is motivated to have them produce this information it's not simply sampled from the ground truth of the environment um, and thinking about the, thinking about the problem in this way right thinking about the, um, it as a kind of causal inference problem uh, embedded within a communication scenario um, helps us to understand why information can sometimes backfire and, and cause people to uh, believe the opposite. Um, there's this famous example in um, uh, in China where there was a episode of milk, uh, poisoned milk, and eventually the government got that under control. Um, the milk wasn't poisoned anymore. Now they wanted to let people know about this, so they put the uh, an announcement on the uh, on the side of milk cartons saying that uh, our milk is no longer poisoned, basically, and. Unfortunately, that had the effect of getting people to drink milk even less. Uh, And and one way to think about that, this kind of paradoxical effect of a persuasive message, is that um, the the people who are looking at this message are doing more than just assessing um, or taking it at face value, right? They're, They're making an inference about what process caused the message to be generated in the first place, and it might not have been a purely disinterested um, message generating process.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's always um, something that I've found in all these questions of irrationality. You always find yourself looking at these examples and thinking, they must have realized the people involved had other information they were looking at. Um, I have a friend who makes a joke about starting a, a serial line that uh, it, he'll make sure that printed in big letters on the front, it says, asbestos free they will put it on the same shelf as all the rest of them because all of a sudden people have to wonder Mm. why why did he need to mention that should i know something about the rest of these right right Um, right. and so i think yeah i think i think that this this question of of broader context um and uh, yeah but it's very important to your book and i think it also seems like it's pretty central to the whole question of of a more i guess holistic reasoner that it's not simply about um you know optimizing your utility in a very straightforward manner as much as it is taking advantage of the information you have so that you don't have to waste a bunch of energy trying to just run the numbers immediately but as, as they are presented, but instead taking some shortcuts because we have to take shortcuts. Um, and and actually to, to get back on, on the discussion of sort of some of the epistemology, um, you talk quite a bit about um, what you call or what you quote is calling um, auxiliary hypotheses as, as a kind of a, a broader way that people can make sense of data that doesn't always completely conform to what they were expecting. Um, I think you could talk for a little bit about auxiliary hypotheses. Sure.
1: Um, Auxiliary hypotheses are really important, both in daily life and also in scientific discovery. Uh, I I started thinking about this originally when my daughter was a, a, a baby. My mother was in our house and trying to put our daughter to bed, and she came out and said, I know how to put her. I know how to put her to bed. What you have to do is rub her head and sing to her. I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. So it's rubbing her head and singing to her. She was still awake. So I said, uh, look, it doesn't work. She said, Oh no, 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 You have to rub her head in this particular way, um, and sing in this particular way. And then it'll work. Um, I go back and do that still doesn't work. She's still awake. And I go back uh, a few times and, um, by the end, you know, I'm practically bouncing on one foot and uh, do, doing a jig uh, to, get, to get her to go to sleep. And finally she goes to sleep and my mom says, see, I was right, that's all you have to do. Um, now, in that example, right, for, for my mother, she had this kind of core hypothesis and then there were a bunch of bells and whistles. Those are the auxiliary hypotheses that mediate the effectiveness of the core hypothesis, right? Um, and this kind of idea shows up in science all the time and, and not always in such a ridiculous way. So, for example, um, that's how Neptune was discovered. Um, and um, uh, and so, and the concern, though, in, in science, in the philosophy of science in particular, is um, when are these kinds of ad hoc auxiliary hypotheses good and when are they bad? Because the, the concern really is that if I'm free to come up with ad hoc auxiliary hypotheses anytime my central hypothesis um, is contradicted by data, then the hypotheses would become unfalsifiable, right? Um, And that clearly isn't good to have unfalsifiable theories. Um, But we also want to have the advantage of um, using auxiliary hypotheses um, to support our arguments. So So for example, um, just to give you another example from the history of science, Galileo made very good telescopes at the time, and he was able to see things on the moon. Um, but other people couldn't see those things on the moon with their crappy telescopes. So, um, Gal- what Galileo needed to do to convince people uh, about what's happening on the surface of the moon is not just about telling them facts about the moon about what he sees through the telescope, but also convincing them that the auxiliary hypotheses um, underpinning the interpretation of the measurements themselves, right, that are really about the measurement process, the measurement device, are, cent- are really important, right? They're really important for people to accept the evidence that you're presenting to them. Um, and I, I took inspiration from these episodes in the history of science and how philosophers of science have talked about them um, and try to bring this into the realm of cognitive science and ask what, when do people use auxiliary hypotheses? What what are their effects on cognition, and when are they rational? Um, and in particular, what what kind of intuitive theory would people need to have um, in some domain in order to um, make the use of auxiliary hypotheses rational? Um, you know, and under what kind of um intuitive theory, would that be rational? And I, I suggested that there are certain aspects of our intuitive theory that make it likely that we're going to use auxiliary hypotheses to explain away disconfirming data. Um, um, one of them being that we tend to have fairly, favor fairly sparse hypotheses and fairly deterministic hypotheses. So we tend to invoke a small number of um, causal explanations for some phenomenon. and That those explanations usually have a very strong effect on those are are, are very kind of causally determinative of of the phenomenon, and that promotes the creation of auxiliary hypotheses.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's it it does kind of uh, tie in quite closely to things like Occam's razor and other kinds of um, sort of I guess elegance-seeking operations because you want to find a, a parsimonious explanation and there are lots of messy things in the data and you have to have some means of being able to pull apart where these things are coming from. Um, uh, but yeah, I think, I think this all kind of, um, touches on these, these, these main themes of, you know, we have to just take a bit of a closer look at rationality or rather at the context in which people are expected to be rational before we can get a good understanding of what is actually going on. Um, I, uh, I just, switch on to a, a new topic for a second um, in uh, in the eighth chapter you talk quite a lot about I'm um, not sure how to pronounce this name is it Fieri Cushman or fiery fiery, Cushman? fiery okay fiery Cushman um, and and uh, and his ideas about control systems um, mm-hmm. and and about the the ways that we can um, understand people's seemingly inconsistent behaviors or the the, the fact that people tend to uh, have preferences that don't always hold despite the fact we'd like them to. We'd like to think we're a bit more um, yeah, consistent with ourselves over time. and and what you end up kind of pursuing is is some of these ideas about control systems about uh, effectively one hand does not know what the other is doing, that we are not always um, relying on the central core of, of of an identity, but instead gauging based on our limited memories where we would have gone before, or rather where we did, make decisions before and how they might tell us about who we are and what decisions we ought to make in the future. I thought that was a really significant way of looking at all these things. And I think it really has some profound, um, consequences for, for identity, for, um, decision-making in any sort. Um, I, I guess I would ask, you know, could you expand on this and, and, you know, just how short is our memory about ourselves? Uh, <laughs> should I be concerned? I'm going to be a completely different person tomorrow because <laughs> I, uh, have a different, uh, Yeah, sense of myself in that way. Right.
1: Well, part of it is memory, but it's not all about memory. Um, There's an old idea in cognitive science that still has a lot of currency, which is that the mind is composed of a bunch of modules. Um, And one reason for having such modules from an evolutionary perspective is that um, it can make certain computations more efficient, right? To the extent that you can have parallel processing in in different parts of the brain. now, one implication of this kind of modularity that um, that Fari Cushman has tried to draw out is that these modules can be in a situation where one module might be generating behavior and the other module is looking at that behavior and trying to interpret it or maybe learn from it. Um, and in some cases, maybe even taking actions to um, subvert or counteract the effects of another module. Right, uh, And this, this is... Uh, this harkens back to an evocative phrase that the computer scientist Margaret Minsky coined the society of mind. Um, so we kind of envision the mind as consisting of a bunch of semi independent agents who kind of communicate with each other. And um, in this case, maybe observe each other's behavior um, by looking at the external effects um, that they have, right? The behavior produced by the agent as a whole. Um, so th- there. One kind of computationally motivated um, version of this idea or instantiation of this idea is um, that you could have modules which um, are very knowledge rich. Like for example, you have some kind of internal model of the environment. um, And that kind of internal model could support um, deliberative processing of the sort like I could generate a plan um, right? I, I could come up with causal explanations of, of various kinds, right? but th- these might be fairly cognitively effortful to carry out. Um, and in some cases, we need to act fast and think fast. Um, and we want to use a module that supports faster computation than the deliberative module might be able to achieve. Um, but on the other hand, the, the fast computation Module might not have all the information that it needs to um, to to do the right thing um, so it make would make sense that the fast module should learn something from the slow module the the deliberative module um, essentially compile what the deliberative module knows into some um, format that can be acted upon quickly um, so you can think about this in the context of uh, action selection where actions could be generated through a deliberative planning or through some kind of action habit. Um, and the habit doesn't necessarily have to be bad. The habit could be a kind of compiled plan. It could, it could be, um, uh, it, it could be a mapping from your stimuli to act to actions that, um, takes into account, um, the effects of of a, of a plan but doesn't actually execute the plan itself and that will save a lot of computation you can act quickly um, and uh, fire cushman talks about this as a f- kind of representational exchange uh, where you're taking information from one module and kind of converting it into a, a format that's interpretable by another module um, and there can be various computational benefits from doing that
0: Right. And then one of the, the the drawbacks that you sort of highlight or, you know, drawback, necessary cost, you know, define it as you will of, of this kind of, um, of this kind of compartmentalization is that oftentimes we can have it that, you know, a decision you might've made before under a certain, uh, context will have some ripple effects later on as you, uh, come to consult what the module who has made one decision, uh, that will serves the the input for the second module to then make a different decision which would seem to be inconsistent with what that for instance deliberative module would have already done and and this of course sounds a lot like uh, Kahneman's thinking fast and slow and the system yeah. one and the system two. um but but also just more broadly expanded it, it isn't just the two but uh, a whole yes a society of mind an ecosystem um, mm-hmm. and I think that uh yeah I think that's a fascinating um, aspect of all of this as well um, and uh Moving on to the the next question then um, so so I think what was interesting for me about reading the book is that uh, so my you know my own uh, familiarity is with uh, stuff in, in qualitative models of, of belief and knowledge and and, and reasoning in general and I'm, I'm studying logic it's all done symbolically and so I don't have a bunch of background um, with say Bayesian statistics so I thought the the book did a, a good job I think of making that more you um, well, accessible to someone like me and i think our, our listeners would definitely appreciate that um but but without having to sacrifice anything technical i mean i think it's at the same time it is a very thorough thing to be um uh, making all of this clear to somebody and I, I i guess the question i have for you then is is more um overall to do with the bayesian approach to things um why would you say you're in favor of it? You know what would, uh, what, What's so nice to you about, um, about thinking of things in terms of, of Bayes' theorem and, and all of these sort of qualitative um, metrics for knowledge and belief and, and reasoning and decisions? Um, I, guess, I guess sell it to me and sell it to our listeners. Yeah.
1: Well, um, from an engineering point of view, the appeal of Bayes' rule is that it's the right thing to do. Um, And a nice way to to see this, particularly for a logician like you, is to um, look at this book by E.T. James, who is a a physicist. But he he wrote this beautiful book called Probability Theory, The Logic of Science. And he takes the logic part seriously. um, And the the first chapter of the book is really the the one worth looking most closely at, because what he essentially does is um, he starts with deductive logic. Um, and then he shows how generalizing um, that formalism to the case where you have uncertainty leads to um, the probability calculus. And Bayes' rule is essentially just a, a basic consequence of the, the axioms of the probability calculus. Um, and, and he, he motivates this basically by ima- asking the reader to imagine a, a robot that you want to be able to do some reasonable things. Basically, you 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 state some some fundamental desiderata about the behavior that you want your robot to exhibit. Um, And that can be expressed logically. You know, there's a certain kind of logical consistency that you want it to have. Um, And then from there, you can generalize it to the case where you have probability distributions over um, those logical expressions. Um, So I I think that that, that's a nice way of of motivating the Bayesian theory, right? But that doesn't necessarily say that it's a good... Descriptive theory of how the mind actually works. And in fact, there's a long history of people denying it as a good descriptive theory. But then there's many other people who um, To this day are including myself writing papers about Bayesian models of various aspects of cognition. So Something has to give right we can't be bad Bayesians and good Bayesians at the same time or can we? Uh, That's one of the interesting puzzles that I try to address in this book um, Which is that uh, some deviations that people have noted from Bayes' rule that, that humans exhibit um, could be understood as rational approximations to Bayes' rule. Because keep in mind that for even moderately complex inference problems, exact inference, so exactly carrying out Bayes' rule, is computationally um, So as every statistician and computer scientist will, who, who works with these kinds of models will tell you, is that you have to use some kind of approximation. And there's been a program of research, uh, and I've done some work on this as well, that tries to look at the kinds of approximations that engineers use for probabilistic reasoning. Um, for example, Monte Carlo methods or variational methods. and develop those as theories of particular deviations uh, from Bayes' rule in in human behavior. Um, So for example, um, I'm sure everybody has seen uh, multi-stable stimuli, usually bistable stimuli like duck-rabbit, where sometimes it looks like a duck, sometimes it looks like a rabbit, you can feel your perception switching between them. And these have been studied psychophysically and um, the switches appear to be stochastic. And you can ask the question, why would your brain be designed to switch between these different image interpretations when they're ambiguous? Um, And one possible answer to this question is that this is a a rational approximation to Bayes rule. In in particular, it could be construed as a Monte Carlo approximation. So the idea behind Monte Carlo approximation is that um, you, instead of... um, enumerating exhaustively all the different possible hypotheses and attaching probabilities to them, what you instead do is sample from a probability distribution. Um, So you're going to only, in general, sample some subset of the distribution, but as long as you can sample the high probability uh, parts of that distribution, then you um, you can construct a reasonable approximation of that distribution, provided you have enough. Samples, um, and so you can imagine that when we look at these um, bistable stimuli, our brain is basically sampling from a distribution over image interpretations, and that's what produces these st- uh, the stochastic uh, switching behavior between the different interpretations.
0: So, in a way, it's sort of a um, well, sort of a, a second-order probabilistic reasoning. You've got the initial, say, Bayes uh, theorem that might be a, a Ideal way to solve the problem, but then you have an additional this this Monte Carlo sampling method, which would be a way of once more attempting to approximate a thing that was itself already a um, a rather tricky um, probabilistic issue to solve.
1: Um, right.
0: Yeah, I think I think, and I think that uh, a lot of these parts, like I said, they come through in a book uh, that uh, that even I, as someone without much uh, background in probability, would be able to to follow nicely. And I guess I guess in a sort of one, one more step, and to kind of touch on something you said before, um, I, I think a big question is, yeah, do you, do you think that you subscribe to it being a, a psychological reality? Do you think that the, the, the Bayesian uh, description is something that we are implementing? Is it simply a normative standard that things are trying to, or agents are trying to live up to? Um, is it just a useful abstraction that we just like to use because it provides good experimental results? Um, I mean, you don't have to commit yourself to one of these, but uh, I'd love to hear your opinion.
1: No, it's a good question.
0: I don't think that the brain is implementing
1: Bayes' rule because the brain can't implement Bayes' rule. Remember, it's computationally intractable. What it can do, though, is implement approximations to Bayes' rule. And in a lot of cases, those approximations might be good enough that, from a descriptive point of view, we could describe what people are doing as implementing Bayes' rule, right? If we just want to um write down an equation that produces the behave- same behavior that people are producing. Um, but then under the hood, they might be using an algorithm that, that looks very different from just the straightforward execution of Bayes rule. Um, and to, to study the, the kinds of algorithms that people use, you need some special experimental paradigms and, and we've put a lot of thought into how we could tease apart different, computational hypotheses about how people might approximate these.
0: Right? Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to read more about this, get into this. Thank you you're beginning to convince me to, to <laughs> check out some probabilistic stuff. Um, so I, I think we, uh, we want to make sure we're not taking up too much of your time. So I think I've got, uh, well, one big question and maybe a small one after so summing up, what would you say you would like to be the main takeaways of the book? Um, I guess without giving away too much, people still need to go out and buy it. But uh, what would you say are, are the main things that you want your readers to come out of this with?
1: Well, what I'd like the readers to come out of it with is, first of all, an appreciation for the richness of cognitive science, uh, computational cognitive science in particular, uh, and the interesting things that have been done um, over the decades, and, and in particular the last decade or so. Um, but then... I guess more polemically, I want to make the case for the, the particular resolution to this puzzle that I, that I posed at the beginning, um, the, the, what you might call the puzzle of intelligence, which is why we're so smart and so stupid at the same time. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the, the resolution revolves around these twin biases. Uh, inductive bias and approximation bias, which produce error, but are are actually inherent parts of uh, a properly functioning computational system.
0: I think that sums it up very well, um, and and I think that. Uh... I think it's a, it's an important perspective that I, I unfortunately don't hear enough of. Um, I think there's a lot of handwringing about the uh, the terrible irrationality of people, and I think oh. simply from uh, I'm just tired of hearing about it. I'm very happy that there's a, a good, well reasoned argument against it in all of this, um, and and in a way that I think is also sort of profoundly human, because you know uh, we we are working with limited information, and it's it's you know let's let's get some some uh, some appreciation for that fact. We're doing surprisingly well with all of this in mind. Um, so I, I, I said it before, we're, we're taking up too much of your time. What, uh, I guess, I guess the last question, very much an NBN kind of question, what are you working on now, now that you have finished up this, uh, this one?
1: Well, my lab is working on lots of different things. Um, I guess the, the, the long-term project that I've become very interested in lately is about the biological basis of memory, um, so it's very different from the stuff that's discussed in, in this book. Um, but essentially, uh, I become preoccupied with concerns about traditional explanations about how memories work in the brain, basically as, a, as a, um, the, the traditional explanation being that memories are stored in the patterns of um, synaptic connections. Um, and I think that there, there's good evidence that there's more to it than that, and in particular that um, there might be an intracellular molecular format uh, for long-term storage of memories. Um, and that's something that I'm, I'm trying to, to study now. And there's a lot of crazy, interesting history there about, you know, transfer of memories through cannibalism and what can you remember when your brain gets remodeled after metamorphosing from a caterpillar to a butterfly and oh, lots nice. Can single cells learn... There's a lot of interesting stuff
0: there. No, oh, it sounds like it. Well, uh, hopefully you'll 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 write it shortly. We'll get you on the mm-hmm. network again. Mm-hmm. You'll get to do another interview, and we'll get to ask some more questions about exactly that. Great. All right. Well, then we want to thank you for your time and uh, and for you know taking the time to explain to us a bit about your book. And uh, it's Princeton University Press came out this year. It's What Makes Us Smart: The Computational Logic of Human Cognition by Sam Gershman.